0: And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here.
1: Hey, buddy, you're looking a little sad. What's wrong? I have terrible news, Glenn. Go on, tell me. I've lost my favourite leash. Lost it, or did one of your legions of fans over in America steal it from your backpack?
2: Either or both, I don't know.
1: Mm, that's terrible news. But there's a fix. What? Our mate, our good mate, Jason Ed furman from einswick Dog Quip. Dogquip? Dog Quip. He has leads...
2: Could I get it customised? You can get it customised,
1: absolutely. To have my name, company, logo. All of it, everything. Blazoned upon it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes, he does all that and more. Oh, Oh, okay. Well, you know the deal. Why don't you tell us about some of the stuff that you know about our good friend, Jason Furman. Jason Furman is where I get all of my Herm Springer items, if I were to use those. Yes, he does those. He Um, has uh, leashes and leads and correction chains and and tugs. All kinds of dog balls, related equipment. Balls. Balls and tugs. Spring pole style setups. Yep. Parachutes. All that kind of stuff. Parachutes for dogs. Are you still doing the parachutes? Yep. I yep. think because he gets those from Fireport,
2: who are the mills that he, he does.
1: He does mills. My God, he does mills. So pretty much all dog training equipment. Jeez, you've lifted my spirits. Oh, well, that's good. I and can I, see. Look at you. You've got a big <laughs> smile on your face. No longer should I be sad about my lost <laughs> leash. I'll be able to get a brand new one from Jason Furman at Einswick Dog Quip. Yeah. We should ring him up again one day and taunt him. Probably. Yeah. And he has a website. Oh my God. Hasn't that been a bloody ordeal? Einswick dog quip. Dogquip, dog quip. Jason Furman. He has a website, and I believe it's com, or is it .au?
3: I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio today by my co-host, Glenn Cook. And today we have the honor and privilege of being joined by, I think you're the head speaker here, right? You're, you're, they're saving you up for last on, on I'm, Wednesday. I'm the last
0: one. Let's just say that, shall we? You know, I'm the tail ender. Yep, it's, yeah,
2: it's uh, Dr. Ian Dunbar.
0: Yeah, we've got to wag the conference at the end, you know, so everyone leaves happy. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, Dr. Ian Dunbar. Thank, Thank you very you. much good for joining to, us. Good to see you both Hey, again. it's been
1: great getting to know you over the last couple of days. We've had some fun times. We yeah. have had some fun times, yeah. we've Yeah, had some, we've, we've, that, um,
0: that to me is what a conference should be. Absolutely. It's, you know, we travel all that way. And for you guys, because I mean, you come from mm. the bottom of the earth, you know, <laughs> it, it's meeting people and, and this is the place then we meet and it becomes an annual event so you can see your friends. Otherwise, yep. you've got to fly to every place in the world. It's just so convenient, you know, mm. to... Um,
2: yeah, it we were Do just discussing conference. we were just discussing with someone else how important it is to have those face to face conversations with dog trainers, how online it can often divulge into madness and you can actually be you can actually be arguing towards the same point and not realise often the times and people tear apart like that, but these conversations here that actually happen face to face that's where real progress gets made and real real training can be talked about mm. and, and and real community is built.
0: Yeah, I think um, you know, we kind of a- Abuse what is a fantastic resource online that I really like the written word mm-hmm. and it's much clearer to understand. So I just read through the article I wrote to explain some of what I'm talking about today, but I, I never do because I don't see the point of talking about something. I've written an article about it and you've all got it, but it, it's there for clarity. Mm-hmm. Yet reading it through, I noticed too terrible it had been edited and I, I just checked it with the original that I sent, and now we have a couple of points of. Where we're not understanding it right. Right, okay. And so, but the way I n- normally write uh, just an email, it is written in absolute clarity. And I actually go back and reread it and mm-hmm. spell check it and I punctuate it, you know, before I send it. It's much quicker face to face, of course. Yeah. But I think what happens online, people just have a knee jerk reaction. They don't read what you've written, uh, they think that you're being antagonistic. They jump all over you and it becomes personal. They then hate you. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's been, the, if you ask me what is the biggest abuse for dogs, I would say it's dog trainers that can't listen. And, <laughs> no, I'm being serious. And learn from each other. We're all trying to do the same thing. Yep. And making it personal absolutely cleaved this profession yep. in the late 90s. I mean, this right. Right them. came together, right on the man, and what was being done with dogs, mm. the level of pet dog training, pet owners were doing stuff, you know, which was better than what was being done in uh, obedience trials. Mm-hmm. In fact, we were holding a canine games once in the um, Toronto Sky Dome. So we got an audience of about 30,000 people because I did it as a favor for the kennel club that was dying. So I said, well, let me put on the games and we'll try and bolster up your audience, you know. And so they're doing obedience over here. And they came over to our ring and said, do you think you can turn the music down? Our dogs are freaking out. (sighs) Not our dogs. They, everyone screaming, banging drums, we're yep. throwing things. They're shouting, and our dogs are intent on their owners and doing it because mm-hmm. they were just normally socialized. Yeah, they got a little bit of environmental enrichment when they were three weeks old, four weeks old. You know, why wait to give a dog environmental enrichment mm-hmm. till its eyes and ears open? Yeah, mm-hmm. start with loud noises when its ears are still closed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it grows up with that. Yeah, they should be feeling the vibration, right? Oh, yeah, of course mm-hmm. they are. Yeah. But, you know, there should be nothing if, if if you just took a week to socialize a young puppy prior to six weeks, there should be nothing in the real world that's going to freak it out. Mm-hmm. But people don't see these things because we look at a dog and say, oh, yeah, he, he's he's normally he, He's full of confidence. He's overconfident. He's so sociable. He's too sociable. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's lying in wait, you see. The damage that's been done won't show until the avoidance phase of development begins about mm-hmm. five to eight months. Then mm-hmm. you notice – the dog's backing away from people or slow to approach and and then he's standoffish and then he's wary then he's fearful and then he bites. But, you know, that all could have been prevented so easily. And mm. I, I always say the, the biggest gift we can give to dogs it, and to children is confidence. Mm-hmm. It's the biggest gift we yeah, can give. 100%. To put it back in as an adult. And, and you guys probably know yourself, we all have our inner fears. And mine, you would you would never it's expect. You would never guess what mine is. And it's leaving my hotel room to come out to a conference crowd. Yeah. Because I know I'm going to be deluged, and there's going to be some people who, who, who aren't polite. There's going to be some people who are angry with me for mm. some reason. And, and I've got to get on and smile, and I'm going to nod and talk to everyone and try and smooth things over. But that ain't me. I am a hermit. I am not the person we were joking with last night. That's not me. That's just me having a laugh, pass the time quickly. Mm -hmm. I stay at home. I don't go anywhere. This is my first travel trip, the only one of the year. I'm
1: I'm actually surprised to hear that because you're a very charismatic person. It's a role.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with that. And because... I feel in some ways secure here because yep. I know a lot of people know me. Mm. So I can talk to a stranger. And, and for a lot of people, it, it makes their day. Because, wow, you know, I got to sit next to Ian at lunch. Like, like yesterday, the lady I was sitting next to about 15 minutes in. She says, y- you're Dr. Ian Dunbar. And she literally she couldn't speak for five minutes. She went bright red. And she was just really embarrassed, you know.
2: So let's talk about that because we haven't introduced you properly. So, can you please explain for our listeners, who I'm sure many know, but perhaps newer people in the industry aren't aware of the role that you've played in the industry to mm. this point?
0: Yeah, um, summary of your life. All right. Well, I was very lucky. I grew up on a farm and I grew up with my dad, and my grandpa, who trained the gun dogs off lease and every animal we had. Um, by the time I was five, I had an 80 cow recall and a 300 chicken recall. Mm -hmm. And they used lure reward training except didn't have a name yet because I hadn't named it. So this was the way we trained animals back then. My great-grandfather won a straight-line plowing contest with no reins. A one-horse straight-line plowing contest. It was the only horse that wasn't, you know, with with reins. Sure. Just taking verbal direction. So I, I grew up with this. Um, I grew up with asking questions. I then went to vet college, got into academics. I grew up with facts. A fact is a fact. And the wonderful thing about behavior is it's observable, quantifiable. We can't argue about it. Sorry, your dog just peed on my leg. Mm -hmm. You you could say, oh, no, well, he's scared. Oh, no, you made a sudden movement. I don't care. Your dog just peed on my leg. Mm -hmm. Fact. Why the dog did it? Supposition. One of the most fascinating aspects of dogs is to... You talk about that at times like last night, I would let that's when we talk about what we think, what we believe the dog is thinking because mm. we don't even know what our spouse is thinking. Exactly. Well, let's, let's get real. Yeah, so now exactly. it's a different species. So to me, I I, I find behavior and, and facts, quantification, of behavior, quantification of behavior change, I training, it, it just gives me the shivers. It's beautiful when I look at a good data set. Mm. And in a flash, I can say, wow, what is this trainer doing? They they have got to a criterion in the shortest time I've ever seen before. They, they had the puppy, and five minutes into training, he did a two-minute sit-stay. And I'm being wise that this sort of stuff happens. So when we keep numbers we know who to listen to because what I find, I saw a lovely t-shirt yesterday. It's something like, uh, yeah, yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Let me see your dog. That cool story. story. Yeah, that's our shirt. That's our, sh- that's yeah, our yeah. shirt. Cool that, story. Show me your dog. That yeah, was my shirt. Yeah, I was wearing me, it. It was you. I'm yeah. oh, good. Well, man, I'm giving you a bit of – <laughs> you guys are the, the best guys. The <laughs> there you go. Thank <laughs> you for coming all the way from well, down that, under.
2: But that is very important yeah. to us. Uh, we we uh, involved in PSA. I was talking with you about that the other day, which is, uh, you know, America's answer to ring sport, uh, to uh-huh. Protection Sports Association. And – uh, that's our club motto. Is- and,
0: and I loved it, by the way. I, w- I walked by and thought, oh, not another one. And then I actually thought, Ian, come on, that was knee-jerk. <laughs> and I stayed for about 10, 50 minutes while it was explained to me. And I said, that is fantastic. Yeah. And what I really, well, I really liked about it was how often little obedience sort of episodes are uh, like integrated – into the activity the dog's doing. Mm-hmm. So unlike, say, you know, Schutzhund or Ring Sport and what have you, it's like one charge, one bite and hold, and one out. And no, if you want reliability, it's got to be bite, hold, out, yeah. bite, hold, out, mm. bite, hold, out, because the more you stop the biting, the more times you can use it as the reward yep. for letting go. And it's the only reward that will work. Yep. You can't use food treats with the dog with that level of drive, you know. Um, but no, you can use what they really want to do, whether it's sniffing or, or biting or tugging or fetching. That's got to be your reward in training.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, you're right. There.
2: So, so let's go back and explain. So, you uh, grew up in a family of animals and had a keen interest in training as a child, but then. Explain the process to us becoming a veterinarian and then a veterinary behaviourist.
0: You know, it was all purely fortuitous. It wasn't like, you know, I'm going to do this for the good of animals. It's just I like landed in it and looked back and thought, wow, I'm glad that happened. So I'm on the farm. The family decided I should be a vet. Okay, It would save money. Yep. Right? So I was always going to be a vet from the time I was three, four, five onwards. And so um, I happened to be very smart when I was young, so I got the grades to get in because you needed really good grades to get into vet college, you know, mm. if you failed, you'd go to medical college because yep. that was easy to get in, you just need a couple of Bs, you know. <laughs> you need straight A's. Just on that. Just sorry to
1: segue in there for a second. It is actually incredible the amount of knowledge that a vet actually needs to know, like all the different anatomies of amphibians. Species reptiles birds dogs cats cows horses i mean it's incredible it, the level
0: of knowledge that you guys even need. even when i started it it was a mass of knowledge mm. but we stuck to the seven basic species Yep. um so cats and dogs and farm animals yep and but you had to yeah you had to be able to treat a snake that was actually on my finals medical medicine exam okay a snake comes in what do you do and because you're we always thinking needles. Well, no, you just put it in a bag and a bit of chloroform, so it's an You know, yep. but you had got to think out of the box. But it was still a body of knowledge which could be mastered. I guess the fastest growing one was virology, and we would do thirty weeks of virology. Medical schools would do two
3: mm-hmm. because right.
0: we've got a lot more viruses. Yep. You know. Um, now it's you, you can't possibly learn it all, and so and it's where the veterinary profession has changed in many ways. You specialise as soon as you start, yep. Maybe uh, only cats and dogs. Maybe only pocket pets. Maybe only dogs, mm. right from the start. And you've still got an an, an awful lot to to grasp, yeah. Um, and also the demographics has has definitely changed. It used to be all men. I mean, it was entirely male, as was dog training. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. These were male-dominated, you know, professions. Now they're female-dominated. It's, yep. it's, it, in my life, well, actually, in 10 years of my lifetime, the veterinary profession changed from one woman in the final year yep. to 87% of women in the incoming year. Yeah, that the 90s a, really flipped the it around, didn't it? But yeah, in mm. the five years I was there. And the other thing that happened, sadly, was, well, when I applied, you either your dad... So I say, your dad, not your mom. Your dad was a veterinarian or a farmer, or else he wouldn't look at you. But within the five years, now those 80, 90% of people coming in were city folk. And I actually, back then, proposed we have to teach behavior to vet students now, that they don't have the animal savvy that I had growing up. With mm-hmm. mm. When I was five, I was off walking in the fields on my own, being followed by three dogs, Occasionally, I'd annoy people by browning up the cows and putting them in the wrong field. So, you know, and I had tremendous animal savvy, but now we had to teach it. And and that started all off because I went to my professors who looked at me, though I was a little different. Everyone wore treed suits and cavalry twill trousers and Viella shirts and a college tie. I had on a a, a yellow tie-dyed T-shirt and lime green bell-bottoms and black hair down on my shoulders. There's only about five of us at college that weren't, you know, short back and size. So I went to – but I was smart. So Mm -hmm. they felt they had to listen to me, the professors, but they really didn't like me. So I said, I think we have to teach behavior. And they said, yeah, uh, good idea, Dunbar, you know. And uh, why don't you go off and research a paper on fish behavior and chicken behavior? Basically saying, right, Dumbubble, yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. we'll get back to you on that one. You know, that's cool. And so I did. And the fish behavior came very, uh, tremendous interest to me, and I later met the guy I was reading about in Singapore, and he showed me all his fish and what they did, and I was blown away. He had a pond of koi. And he says, which one do you like? There's 40 koi here. I said, that one over there, you know, it's, it's like black and orange and white. And he said, okay, and he put his hand in the water and he fiddled with his fingers. He had a finger code, vibration code for every fish, and that fish swam over to him, and he picked it up. Wow. No shit. Now, I'm a scientist, so I've seen it, Wow! but I don't believe it. Mm. So I said, okay, that fish, it came over. And I said, all right, the first one again, it came back. So when I got home, I did it with my fish. I had a little, little baby <laughs> fish in a tank, and I taught them all to come when called and to go too. Mm -hmm. And it was a gravity little party trick. Mm. And I'd have like a fish house and a fish corral, and I would say, corral, or fish house. And they would just swim there because that's where I put the food. Mm -hmm. Anyway, then I met these chicken people, chicken behaviorists. Then I found this group, the Society of Veterinary Ethology, veterinarians studying applied behavior of farm animals. Mm -hmm. So I asked if I could join. And uh, I was their first student member because you had to be a vet. Well, I was a vet student. So they let me join. I was the only second person after Anders Hålgren from Sweden who was interested in dogs. So I was like, you know, and then I come to the States to do a PhD quite, you know, I didn't want to be a vet because I, I'm peripatetic. I could not stay in the same place. Mm-hmm. I want to travel. So I thought academics. Mm. So I'm in Uganda working for a few months. And I thought, well, academics, what shall I study? I, I, I liked obstetrics, but I was fascinated by behavior. I just discovered this in the library. You know, so I thought sexual behavior. I love cows, like dogs, tossed a coin, came down dogs. So I thought, well, I've just gone through London in the 60s. What, wherefore the 70s? It's got to be San Francisco, right? So I wrote around, where can I study sexual behavior of dogs near San Francisco? And this guy writes back to me and says, Doctor, he called me doctor because vets over here are called doctors. You know, in England back then, they were misters. Of course, we're specialists, as you said. That's why we refused the title doctor until very recently. Right, okay. Yeah. And um, he said, Yeah, you know, please come and join my research program. I'm studying sexual behavior of dogs. I can get you into the PhD program so you can get a PhD at the same time and I'm willing to pay you this amount of money as a research associate and I, I just died. He was offering me more money than my professor was earning.
2: You know? Yeah, right. It wow. was
0: the, the, Perfect. It, it was amazing. I loved it. My day would be get up at 9, go up to the field station, grab a beer, Watch dogs screw. <laughs> <laughs> that,
3: that was, and
0: we did it till 11, and that was the day over because the dogs were bushed, they were you down. know. Yep. But no, what we started was all aspects of sexual differentiation. So the question mm-hmm. was, how do male and female dogs develop differently? And obviously mating behavior is the first one, but then um, I got into the olfactory preferences, totally different, you know, had smelling male dogs smelling male or female urine or what mm-hmm. have you. And then eventually we got into social behavior, the development of hierarchies. And we got, it was, a, it was a seminal like moment when our male hierarchy, fixed in stone, never varied day to day for 10 years, fixed in stone. Males live by the hierarchy, bitches don't. Mm. Bitches come up with every reason possible why they're going to ignore the male hierarchy I call it the, the bitch amendments to male hierarchical law. Mm. Right. <laughs> Amendment number one, the bitch says, I've got it, you haven't. Yep. Buzz off. Yep. So bitches are much more protective of uh, valued objects than males. So as I'm going through this, I'm thinking, wow, you know, breeders would love this information or dog owners would love it. And then we get to this point that our top dog died, Ken, the king. And so Eddie moves up to number one. Well, then we... Randomly selected another male dog to put in, and he slotted in at number four. And I then looked at our hierarchy, and it was absolutely inversely correlated with weight, which doesn't make sense at all, mm. right? So our top dog was the smallest dog, Eddie. Right. And the second top dog was the second smallest, Cathias. Down to our bottom dog, you know, the, the lowest-ranking uh, dog there was the biggest dog in the pack. So now I thought I can get what I want because I wanted to watch it develop mentally. I wanted to watch puppies grow up and how aggression developed. And when we see the early warning signs, so I took this to my my mentor and he did one one glance at the the data and said, all right, you can have your puppies because he understood it, Mm -hmm. you see. Yeah, it just so happened with this group of five, absolute fluke. A a one in a 10,000, well, we could work out the actual odds of it, but let's say one in a thousand fluke but it's perfectly correlated with age you see it's not age now it's age when you were growing up when it mattered when you were learning mm-hmm. well if you were six weeks old and acting like a jerk and a bigger pup is nine weeks old just a three week difference is enormous Huge difference, difference yeah. yeah and between puppies and adults nolo cantandre so that's what i called it developmental nolo cantandre in development there's no contest You don't fight to establish a hierarchy. It's just living and playing and stuff like that. So right at that time, someone asked me to give a a lecture to a 10-week course on dog behavior for university extension, and it paid good money. So I said, yeah, put together a 10-week course, which is the longest course I've ever given, Mm. general public, and first week I realized this is different. You know, when you're lecturing at university, Every hand that goes up, I know what the question is, you know, is this going to be on the midterm? Mm-hmm. Yep. And when you're delivering an academic paper, everyone wants to pick holes with it. They want to find what you didn't do, you know. And so that's why all my studies are so simple and all use the animal as its own control. You can't pick holes in it because it's simple. My, my, You know, in training, it's test, train, test. So in 40 minutes, I get a dog, I test him, I go sit. Sit, (laughs) sit, sit. So how many times do I say sit before he sits? And then we have a simple formula. So I do that 10 times. I actually go sit down, sit, stand down, stand. And for each position change, how many times did I have to say sit? So now we have number of position changes. We do it 10 times. So that's 10 divided by number of commands given times 100. That is your response reliability percentage. And when you do it as a trainer, it shocks you because you look at, say, uh, sit up from the down, it's 40%. Well, now I think we got a lot lot to do before we got angry with the dog for not doing it. Mm -hmm. Anyway, talking to owners, they loved it. They loved it. And once I pinned them down to taught them how to ask a question, you know, a question to me is a mm. sentence that begins with a signal word like how, what, when, where, or why, yep. and ends with an interrogative. It's not, what well, my daisy, no, honestly, I'm not really <laughs> fond of that. <dogs laughs> going on and on and on, right? No, yeah. My
2: dog stories. And yep. so
0: they'll ask a question, and it's usually, how can I stop my dog from barking? And I say, that's a very good question, but it's the wrong one. Okay? It would be, I would think, a better question is like, how can I reinforce my dog for being calm and quiet? Mm -hmm. How can I teach my dog to shush or settle on cue? And we can do that right now very easily. And by the time the session's finished, your dog does it. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I would test, you know, sit down, sit, stand down, stand. And then I train them and I test them again after 40 minutes. So I'm doing a lot of this now. It's all on video so that I'll provide it to people in two ways. One, I've edited it with the numbers So every time I praise or give a food treat, it'll go sparkle because I'm counting it. Because the very first treat I give, from then on I'm phasing it out. Mm. And the very first treat, you know, my first four trials go, uh, hi, puppy, my name's Ian, here's a treat. Then I step back and say, hi, puppy, and it comes and gets a treat. So already I'm asking more now. First he just had to take the treat and tolerate me, stick around. Now he has to come take a treat then it's come and sit treat then i go come sit down sit stand down stand treat that is seven behaviors for one treat Mm. and i'm only on the fourth trial of training and the reason i do that is when i taught puppy classes um the average puppy week one golden retriever puppy if you do puppy push-ups you know sit downs will gladly do 20 puppy push-ups for the prospect of a single treat. So it means you're using it as a lure all the time, but you're not giving it to the dog. Mm -hmm. That's 40 behaviors for one food reward. Are we feeding dogs too much? Yeah, we've totally trashed. Anyone who uses food is just trash training because they devalue the treat before they go anywhere. Mm. So eventually the dog would start blowing it off, then they look for tastier treats. Then it's the slippery slope of bribery. Because it be, it becomes bribery. Yeah, absolutely. And in bribery, you you're not going to get the reliable response. Mm-hmm. You're actually using like dried fish to get slow, sloppy, and unreliable responses. Maybe. Yeah. Well, there's no measurable and, learning there, is there? It's no. Just, it's just
1: follow the bouncing ball. And
0: so it's why mm. it, my talk today will be about quantification. Mm. And trainers have to do research because the research that's being done that we, we're told you know you've got to follow peer-reviewed, published research. It's nothing to do with what we do. Mm. There isn't any, and the, and the only people who can do it are trainers. It, it, and questions not, how can we get to criterion? How quickly can we get there? Uh, my latest, you know, reactivity, I've, I've only done it with one dog, because finding a reactive dog is, is, is tricky to have, um, to be able to have access to that and others. So it took 35 minutes before the dog stopped reacting, calmed down for ages, then I let it sniff the, the single dog it's singling out. And then we brought in another female because he was only picking on this one female. They said, bullshit. As soon as you bring another female, he turns reactive on her. So <laughs> 35 minutes, and then he's cool. Then we took him home. So we take him away. He's actually living with a trainer. And he lives with us. And we have five male dogs there. And we just let him out. And, and my wife, Gina says, uh, well, how do we introduce him? I said, put him out in the pack. And that was it. He learned to play again. He developed confidence, social savvy. Now, I just heard three days ago, he went back to class for the first time. He hasn't been in class for five weeks. So he's just been training as a service dog with veterans because everybody in class didn't want him there, including the trainer who's trying to train him because the dog was acting like a jerk. But there wasn't a dangerous bone in his body. Once I, you know, watch him, And the shock that I got was, you see, because you can't read dog behavior in reactivity if you can hear the dog because we all respond. We respond to that. So when I went back to look at the footage, I turned the volume off. The reason was because someone was working a jackhammer in the room next door. So it's kind of a stressful situation. But in 35 minutes, he gets his play back again. He gets his life back again, you know. Mm. So I turned the volume off, and then I saw a different dog from what I saw. i I got pretty good eyes, and what I was counting, the number of friendly behaviors he's putting out as he does his woo-woo stuff. They look just like the typical shepherd, you know. So they go, woo-woo-woo, and then back, 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 and woo-woo-woo. So I'm counting how many times does he bend his elbow. Well, every woo, he's going into a partial play bow. That counts as two. And I calculated in one minute, of me watching him, he's putting out 60 friendly behaviors a minute, but all we perceive is the growling and barking. So we say, oh, he's a reactive dog. Get him out of here. My view is he's a dog that wants to play so badly, but he just can't. So he goes woo-woo. He's in such conflict. Mm. So I'm not going to let him think about it. I'm just going to say, you're in there, buddy. It's kind of like me. I, I, I hate heights. You know, and and when my kid got older, he got old enough to go down these slides, you know, these like vertical drops into water where you're going to shatter your testicles when you land. (laughs) You know, I think they call them testicular destroyer or something. And I got up there. I am so scared. And then the the guy said, yeah, come on, old man. This was, you know, 30 years ago. (laughs) Come on, old man. People are waiting for you. So I thought, well, help. I got it. Did it. Loved it. And said, i got to do that again. That was a thrill. But I I would never have done it. It It's like jumping out of a plane. I have never done it. I promised myself by board, and when I turned 50, which was the deadline, I thought, no, I won't. It's a perfectly good plane, no reason to jump out. If it's crashing, there's a parachute, I'll be the first one to grab it. Yep. You know? Say to a pregnant lady, no, let me hold you. (laughs) Let me (laughs) put the parachute on and go down. (laughs) So anyway, um, when it all, like, came out in the open was. So I'm giving these talks now to the general public and the occasional ones, the kennel clubs and a lot of obedience clubs. Um, But then I got a puppy and I tried to get him into class. I couldn't. I I ended up, it became a quest. I actually rang 50 training clubs in Northern California. They said, no, you'll have to wait till he's six months or a year old. I said, you're kidding me. I said, it's a Malamute. It'll be less like saying to children, you got to wait till you're 22. Can you imagine if they started kindergarten at yeah, 22? That's It'd be like last night mm. in the bar, and I mean, craziness from adults, <laughs> you know. Anyway, so I went along to watch. So I thought, well, I'll have to wait till he's six months old, then, you know. And I went along and watched as a scientist, and I thought, what are these people doing? And... They put the dogs on leash, and people would be in class for like three years, walking around, and the guests kept jerking them. Mm. So and there's no rhyme or reason to it, what they were trying to teach. There was no, like, explaining the instructions beforehand. There was no luring. Yep. There, there wasn't much even gentle positioning or physical prompting. It was basically put a dog in a situation, put him on leash, don't give him any clues about what you want him to do, and then when he gets it wrong, jerk him. And so I went home and I talked to my wife, a cognitive psychologist, and she said, well, when are they jerking him then? I said, I don't know. I'll go back next week and I'll score. So I had a little, uh, like a target, an X with two feet. That's the owner. And then I'd put an X wherever the dog's medial chest was when it got jerked. Then I take it home and I show my wife, and she's so smart, and she looks at it and says, oh, my God. I said, Yeah. of jerks come if the dog's too far ahead or too far behind. 15% if he's wide, 5% if he's too close or touching. I said 85% of jerks come when each problem is the solution for the other one. Mm -hmm. All they've got to do is teach the dog to forge on cue, commonly known as speed up, or to slow down on cue, lag on cue. Now they have an instructive reprimand, so I asked the trainer, who is a very smart, very good trainer, English. I said, do you think I could try a little exercise with the healing? I want to teach everyone how to teach their dog hustle and steady. And we did that. It takes about 10 reps for each. Now I said, if you want to jerk your dog, I want you to look at him. You ask the question, is he too far ahead? In which case you go steady, wait one second. If he slows down, you praise him. If you don't, you jerk him. Mm-hmm. We eliminated so many. You can't believe it. Next, Because when I came back the second week, we still had the same number of jerks. What do you see? A a punishment, a correction, is not defined by its nature, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, whether it's aversive or not. It's defined by its effect on behavior. Mm -hmm. So that a punishment is something that will cause the immediately preceding behavior to decrease in frequency such that it's less likely to occur in the future. Yep. So a test of training is, are your punishments decreasing over time? And the answer was no. Mm. That means there was no training. Therefore, the jerk is not a punishment by definition. So anyway, we now started to get rid of least jerks. Why? Because they were coming after a verbal instruction. Mm. Steady. It's now a choice point. If you slow down, we praise you. If you don't, you get a jerk. And the dog suddenly started learning quickly. But anyway, I looked at this, and, and then my wife had a terrible intervention. I was a, a, a at-home husband looking after my child, raising him. My wife went out to work. She had a great job, you know, and one day I think she got sick of it because I was, you know, renovating the kitchen and the house. We just bought a new house, but she knew I was playing tennis all afternoon. With friend, you know. <laughs> so she had an intervention. She gave me a cigar, said, Ian, I want you to go and sit on that rock on the beach, you know, waves crashing. I want you to think how you're going to bring money into this relationship. <laughs> so done. so I go out there and I light it up and I think, God, get a job. Oh, you're kidding me. I mean, it was an anathema to me. I, I work very hard, but I like to work when I want to work. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, it better be to do with dogs and probably behavior. And I had little Omaha at home, you know, my, my little puppy, who's like eight weeks old. I just got him. I thought, I know, I'm going to teach puppy classes. So he was in the second puppy class I taught, and I thought, I'll do it off-leash. That'll eliminate the problem of leash jerks so they can learn off-leash control from the start. And so the puppies, the other thing we discovered in our research was bite inhibition. So the puppies get to play with other puppies and bite them and get to meet the 24 people in the room, the families that have come with these 12 puppies and play with them and bite them. So I can check, do they approach people or are they staying away from men? I'm going to pick up all these incipient signs of a dog bite happening at two years of age. We see it all in the first week of of puppy class. I loved it. I can't explain it. I told my wife, I said, I'm going to teach puppy class. She said, you've got two PhDs and you're going to teach puppy class? I said, yeah, it'll be fun. You've got two PhDs. Well, I've got three doctorates, but one's not real. Yeah, what <laughs> so actually? No. What are you, Doctor Tink? Can Roger, you tell us? Roger Abrantis gave me a DHC, which is a doctorus honoris causa. He had yep. an etological institute in Denmark. So, he, and I, I just think it's funny, but I love it because it's in agriculture. Mm. So that I have the fake PhD or the honorable one in um, agriculture, then veterinary degree, which has uh, since become a doctorate way after I qualified, and a PhD. Um, ostensibly in psychology but i was studying dog behavior dog sexual behavior well you are a hard worker so no it was fun i i i I was thinking about it last night talking to roger brantus about our careers because i've known him forever yep and we were both thinking this is this is the last conference we we can't do it anymore it's tiring man to be out there till the Arse close at two, and smiling and laughing with everyone, and it's I, I, it really is tiring. And and now, of course, it's all online, yeah, everywhere. Every my whole brain has been digitized by my son, and it's all up there on a couple of our websites, which are you're all free, you know. Well, not all free. One of them's all free. The other one is Eight half free and half yep. subscription. Yeah, and so I don't have to do this now. But the one thing I want to do is to stay in touch with a lot of the people. You know, so many of my family, I call it, live in different parts of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, in Oz, in Kibiland, you know, South Africa. And I know I've got one more trip to Oz in me. I really want to go back to Australia for a long trip, probably like six weeks. Um, and, um, you know, up the East Coast and then Perth. I love Perth. I love uh, Creature Comforts pub and, you know, Fremantle. Uh-huh. That's, that's a great pub. Uh, dog friendly. I went there with a very famous dog once, Honey. So if you Google Honey the Great Dane, she was very famous, and Honey did everything. So I I took her to Little Creatures, and they they check the dogs going in, and you get a medallion for them. Yep. They check out. I said, "Well, you know, my dog's outside." Okay, he says, "Yeah, is it big or little?" Says, "Yeah, it's medium." <laughs> <laughs> Honey the Great Dane. But anyway, so once I did the the puppy stuff, it was it was a gold mine in um, science again. And one by one, all the, all the um, psychology professors would come and either with a yeah, new puppy or observe classes, and they said, my God, do you realize what's going on in this room? I, I said, I know. It's so many people learning so much at the same time. It, it's a, like a microscope into family dynamics, the stuff you see between people. I could pinpoint whose divorce is going to end in the next two years. I mean, the interactions with the dog. Mm-hmm and um, the dog that doesn't like the child, the self-esteem dropping off. And it was it was wonderful. It was like rich, applied behavior, and essentially making puppies happy and making people happy. And so they're going to really have a, f- a fun life together instead of the training being combative mm-hmm. and everything. How can I stop my dog doing this? How can I punish my dog when I'm at work, you know, when he's at home alone? And it was, it was wonderful, and that spread the word when we had the video out because I was lecturing abroad as well as in the States and Europe. But as soon as the serious puppy training video came out, it spread. So I was getting visitors. I'll tell you because this is on, I hope, it's about a guy. He's But anyway, it's an English guy. So
3: <laughs> <in Australia. laughs> this is going to be juicy. He was a, No, it's just so
0: funny. He was a dog trainer, um, X raf and he come, he's heard about this puppy stuff, and he doesn't believe it, because, but he's seen the video, so he had to come over and see it in person. So he writes to me. By then it was all writing. And you know, And I said, yeah, come on. Back then, anyone who wanted to watch the puppy class, they stayed at their house, and my wife would cook. She's great, you know, Chinese food. So he comes over, and all the way driving to give puppy class. He says, yeah, well, you can't train puppies. He says, I, I don't know why I'm here. He's really struggling with the, mm-hmm. the collision in his brain of you can't train puppies, but we're going to watch puppy class. Yep. Like, what am I doing here? If I wasted my money, he said, you just can't train puppies. So I just put on a show for a man, you know, all the little puppies doing some really neat stuff, like distance position changes, you know, on a, uh, you know, 14 week old puppy, like, you know, basically the utility signal exercise. And um, then we came home having dinner. My wife just had the way of asking a question that exposed everything, whatever you wanted to be exposed, your soul or the answer to the question. And so she's cooking on the wok at the stove, and she says to him, I won't use his name, let's call him Joe, says, hey, how was the puppy class, Joe? He says, oh, no, you, you can't train puppies, of course. You can't train puppies. Those puppies there must have been trained already. <laughs> it's the best comment I've ever had. You can't train a fourteen-week puppy. So, oh, they must have been trained at twelve weeks, and this thing's a sham. So it, it was a crack up. He was a lovely guy, though, and and it's it, all he had was what we call proactive inhibition. That the hardest person to teach to uh, train a puppy off leash is a dog trainer mm-hmm. because they've been taught how to do it this way on leash, and because you've got this prior knowledge that's different, it won't let new knowledge come in, comes in, it's called proactive inhibition, whereas an owner, they know next to nothing, mm. and they, they may say you'll get some idiot, usually a, a man, who'll say, no, I've had dogs all my life, I know, you know, and so I say, look, if you thought you're having a heart attack, and you went to a doctor, and he gave you advice, you wouldn't say, look, I've had a heart all my life, I can tell you, I know hearts, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but everyone says it with dogs, I know dog, you know, so, if they're ranked novice, they learn really quickly. But for ages, we had to, the only way to deal with it was if you were a dog trainer, you had to hold a glass of water in your left hand. They could not stop that hand movement like they were jerking the leash. And even if I got them to lure with their right hand, it would go like this. <laughs> it was really, really funny. And it was just a reflex that mm. was in there. Um, but of course, I mean, people loved it. It spread in the obedience world first that my second trainer was a lady who at the time was the top-ranking obedience competitor in in the country, in the U.S., and she was in NorCal Golden. So any new idea I had from even when I was, uh, you know, before I taught the puppy classes, back when I was doing research, uh, um, I would run it by them because I was coming out with all these ideas to, like, mega-motivate dogs and life rewards and all this stuff. Let, and, let's, can we jump on that for a sec? Meg, yes. Mega motivate. Um, What's your interpretation of that? It's, well, a, a look at training now. Click, treat, come on. This is a dog you just told me he's reactive to other dogs, and another dog just walked by, and he's sitting and looking at you, and you're going to do a friggin' click and a treat? It, it's ridiculous how we've gone. I mean, it, I feel guilty. I bought in food treats that brought them back I yep. should say food lures food rewards and toy lures toy rewards um hosted the very first clicker workshop ever you know and promoted it because people didn't see the point of it I understood it because I'd read all that stuff mm. and what they had done in the war uh, this the, the clicker training stuff that the uh, Breelands did and Bailey so yep. it was uh, Keller Marion Breeland yep. and who became Marion Bailey and Bob Bailey um Yeah, I know the magic of this and I use it when I've tried just waiting for it. I've tried patience. I've tried luring and it ain't working. Then I'll shape it. Otherwise, I wouldn't use a shaping technique because it's so slow. It requires an enormous skill set before you start. And, of course, it requires good timing. So (laughs) we need consistency and good timing. And these are two things which are often in short supply with your clients. And I don't mean that in in a... bad way you know they've got busy lives they've got an iphone they're looking at they and we got to teach them no i don't want you to pay attention all the time but here's the deal i'm going to tell the dog the same thing as i'm telling you this dog can be an automatic pilot 99.9 percent of the time and when you talk to it it's not a command it's a suggestion we know that and the dog may ignore it it's like a stop sign in sydney you know it's a mere suggestion right If you want the dog's attention, you change his name and sometimes change the command. I just change the dog's name. So, say with little Hugo, I call him many things. Hugie, come here, buddy. He doesn't want to come. I say, all right, stay there. I don't care. We're living together. It's just a suggestion. But if I say, Hugo, Louis, come. So, by allowing a dog to relax and be totally inconsistent 99% of the time, I can allow the owner to relax and be totally inconsistent 99% of the time. All the owner has to learn is, if you ever call your dog by his formal name, so instead of Om, Omaha, and then Wahoo, he had three names. Because Omaha is his formal name, which means, listen to the next word, and you must do it immediately. Wahoo means, and hold your tail high, wag, and look at me like I know what I'm doing, because this is showtime, we're in the ring. So one word, we can communicate all that, and I call them, you know, we have three different levels. I call them dog-con. Dog-con one, chill, relax. Dog-con two, formal, we want instant reliability. Dog-con three, plus style, okay? And so when we're working with a dog in its formal mode, so instead of at Omaha or Hugo Louis, we really use high-level rewards. Well, what's the highest level reward out there? Well, most people classify them all as behavior problems. All the things we punish dogs for doing, like sniffing, wandering off, running away from you. That was Dune's mega reward. Mm -hmm. So we're doing come, sit, focus. And then I go tag and I chase him. He loves it. And if I Mm -hmm. catch his tail, the game's over. I can never catch him. Mm -hmm. But with my voice, while I'm chasing him, I can say, Dune, sit. And he sits instantly. Because if he doesn't, that game's over. So All we do now is kind of like we are talking about earlier. We integrate little training episodes within what you once called a behavior problem that was a distraction and works against training. Now it's a reward that works for training. And every time you stop the sniffing or stop the dog looking away from you or stop the dog running around like a whirling dervish, you can start it again by letting the dog whirl and derv or mm-hmm. sniff. Yep. And, and, you know, and then we add on top of that our voice, the thing that really hurts me, that saddens me. It's gone from training. And it's where, you know, a piece of kibble, a single treat for doing that, that we just had five kids come in the house and your dog, he's not even in formal mode. He just stood there and watched them as three run out, one put his finger up the dog's nose, the other tugged on his ear. That is a frigging good dog. And he's not just getting one treat. I'm going to tell him, I'm going to say, y- you know what, Zuzu? You are the best dog in the world. Daddy loves you. I mean it. You are gorgeous. Because of what she just did, that is absolutely brilliant. What did she do? Nothing. That's the point. What could she have done? One poor raise, she could have scratched the child's face. There were two people at the bar last night, both have identical scars there from dog's paws when they were kids, mm. let alone a bite. Or frightening them. One woo, and the kid's. I don't like dogs, and that fear is going to be in there now. So he's going to fuel every dog he meets. It's the first thing dogs sense. They don't like dogs, so the dogs are weirded out. You know, and um, so just a huge reward, and the best reward comes from your voice because of, of what you can do. You can you can pick a single word like um yeah, brilliant. There, you say that lot and. I was you know, that's brilliant, mate. And um, what does brilliant mean to the dog? I'm going to teach it what it means now. I'm going to say, hey, come here, sit. Brilliant, on the couch. Brilliant, tummy rub. Brilliant, go play. Or go and sniff that other dog's bum. Brilliant means everything that's worth anything to a dog in life usually comes after they say brilliant. Mm. So now when I'm training and it's boring, I say, that was brilliant. It's, it's great. Mm-hmm. And with men, I always teach them. I say, I, I give up with women, but with men, I say, keep your feed, keep your command language neutral. And you can also keep your feedback neutral. Why? Because they can't squeak. So it's no good telling a man you've got to squeak when the dog's good. He's
3: a good boy, then. He's a good boy.
0: You know, like I, I work with veterans, veterans at the moment. To get them to squeak is a very uncommon experience, right? Yeah. So I say, how do you? What do you want to say? So I want to say, "Good dog." I say, all right. Well, let's do it like this. Bear with me. So I want you to say, um, "Say, uh, Rover, good dog. Rover, good dog. Bit of kibble. Rover, good dog. Two bits of kibble. Rover, good dog. Bit of turkey. The dog learns." You know, well, good dog's a good word, but when they say it gruff, it really gets good payoff. Or your emergency sit. So we say, Rover, sit. Good dog. Rover, sit. Good dog. Treat, treat. Rover, sit. So we built, and that's 10 steps, by the way. So we're now shaping the intensity of the command, and the dog learns Jesus when they scream sit. Um, I, I get steak. I get five bits of steak. The, the owner runs up to me. You know, so now we're teaching the dog, when I shout, there's nothing to be scared about. It's just higher volume and gruff tone means better rewards and happier me. Mm-hmm. So Rover, sit. We a good boy. Treat a good dog. And that's important. Otherwise, the first time you use your emergency command, the dog freaks out, thinks, Jesus, they're shouting yeah, again. Yeah, they're in trouble.
2: So there's, there's some awesome stuff there. And I have to admit, when I first got into dog training, a lot of the early content that I was consuming was was a lot of yours. And and to this day, I have a very high-level competition dog whose name is Remco on the field. Mm-hmm. And in the house, his name is Remy. Mm-hmm. And I've spoken here about how I wouldn't even ask him to do anything in the house because I doubt he'd do it. And uh, But also- that is because I've never reinforced him in the house for anything with like a high value reinforcer. His Mm -hmm. reinforcer is his presence. He gets, Mm -hmm. so long as he chills out and doesn't act like a Malinois in my house, Mm -hmm. he gets to stay in the house. That's good. The moment he, he, (laughs) the moment he remembers he's a Malinois, he gets put outside uh, and that's his only reinforcer. So I would never use obedience in the house. And I got a lot of that from you. I think the puppy stuff is very, very interesting as well. And, and I similarly, I, use a lot of the life as a reinforcer where, where possible. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that people overlook the idea of uh, a release to liberty um, as the primary reinforcer because letting the dog do whatever he wants is what he wants. Um, I think all that is the foundation of really uh, conflict-free dog training.
0: The, I think, yeah, and I, mean, I would take a dog like yours and I would say we have to have, we, we must give feedback to the dog when he gets it right um, and when it gets it wrong mm-hmm. and and we have to correct that. So if it's misbehavior, we have to get him behaving correctly, chewing the right thing, peeing in the right place, et cetera, mm-hmm. or shushing when, when requested, when it comes to lack of compliance. So for someone like you, if you give a command and that dog doesn't do it, so we make it easy. I'm own, I only expect this when I, I use Remco, your formal name, uh, but you have to do it. And if you don't do it, I'm, I'm going to be all over you. Yeah. So how are you going to be all over the dog? Well, With a dog like yours, the rewards I would use in training is I will continue training you. Mm. If you sit and look at me, I'll then say down or fetch or tag or tug or what have you. If you're in Remco mode and you blow me off once, I won't say this on the air, but I actually say, (laughs) and then I say, get out of my sight. Yeah. Training is... Finish. and I do this it's an ASL sign right in the dog's say, finish go yep. penalty box and then I call any other dog that's close Hugo come here Do you want to play with Dunes tug toy good boy and I just ignore the dog and he's like let me in on the game let me in I'd say get out of here Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't even put that we used to put the dogs in a penalty box mm-hmm. which was the last big step coming down to the garden but now I just say no I don't want to chain with you. So yeah. you're just identifying with a high level negative punishment. Um yeah it's like people would say oh well, God it's it's powerful. It's powerful yeah, because powerful. I'm denying you're tearing everything the, the, everything the fabric that of what that the dog means wants. anything to mm. a Malinois, yep. that I can do it I can look at my own I'm still look at, yeah. own. I can look at my own and keep looking at my own and I can sit them down and fetch and wiggle and this I just say I don't want that anymore.
2: Well let, mm. let's and, and
0: say what you think. You know, I, I tell people, and it's where express a single word that reflects your exasperation now. Tell him a story. I mean, I once did my Malamute, you know, he blew me off in the ring. This was not good, and, and we uh, NQ'd, you know. And I was outside the ring, and I, I just talked to him, and I, I said, Omaha, oh I, I just I don't get this. You know, I do everything for you. You know that. You know my position in the world of dogs. You know, everyone knows when I walk in, I'm a frigging expert, you know, and you just trash my street cred. I'll, I, I'll feed you anything you want. I play any game you want to play. All the bad things you did, digging holes, has now become a game. You know, we do it every day, digging in the digging pit, you know, chasing. I now chase you because no dogs will chase you in the dog park. You go woo and they run away from you. And then if you chase them, people get mad at you. So I chase you and my neighbor comes over to do it. What, what is it? And he sat there, and and I stopped in a diatribe, and I I said, you know, you know I love you, and I actually cry now. I I, I broke down crying with him, and it sort of got it out of my system. Um, That was it. I mean, that was it, man. All I had to do was slightly now change my tone when I go in the ring, and instead of saying, Omaha, sit, I would say, Omaha, sit. I would put tears in my eyes when I trained him. And I did this, and judges came up, so I'd come in the ring like this, and they say, are you ready? And so I would burst out laughing always. This is the way I trained. I want people to think I'm a, I'm a funny guy. I'm not an uptight because I don't want you docking points just because you have to dock points, you mm-hmm. know. Give us a break, sort of thing. I do have a malamute. And then I, what I do was I close my eyes, and I go, and I crack, contract every muscle in my face and body like this. And what I'm doing is I'm becoming Wahoo's owner. I've got Om here, who's lying at my feet, which is funny. He's curled up looking around at everyone. And then I turn down and I speak to him in the ear. And I say, Ohm to Omaha. Heel. He comes up. And then I say, Omaha to Wahoo. And I stand up like this and I get tears in my eyes so that when I give a voice, there's emotion in my voice. Omaha said, He knows I'm at breaking edge. And he doesn't want that to happen. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of like all extra cues you can give with your voice. There's So many of them. The best being the words you say. Mm. Yeah. So
2: I agree. I think that the, especially in the balance training community, the use of negative punishment is sometimes poo-pooed as not being very effective. And I think that especially with an affiliative dog, it is, probably well there is evidence scientific evidence to suggest that the non-reinforcing marker is this most stressful thing you can do to a dog at oh, right yeah. that moment it's the most effective absolutely but the problem that I have with that and in training that's fantastic I, I, I use that very very regularly exactly as you say sometimes if I ask my dog to do something and he, he gives me refusal then he loses his access to the training session and me mm-hmm. um, I famously have a story that I tell people at seminars about how I lock I, I use a slap mill a treadmill and one time I offered my dog the opportunity to perform a behavior and he didn't do it mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And well, that I just walked out of the room, but he's stuck on the treadmill and I waited around the corner until he cried. Literally he was crying. And then I come back in and he performed the behavior beautifully. Mm -hmm. But the problem is in, and in training, that's fantastic. But then it's not a tool that you can use when something goes wrong in a correction. You know what I mean? So in, in training to teach the dog, to do something that negative reinforce, that negative punishment is super effective. But then when I need the dog to do something one day, uh, and I ask him to do it, if he can't do it, then I don't have a tool to make it happen in that time. So I agree. We're talking about using different names, and you said when I call him Remco, it's got to mm-hmm. happen. And I I I'd use that so sparingly. I have a line that I say in that uh, I don't ask my dog to do anything unless I'm in a position to reinforce it. Mm. And by reinforce it, I mean pay him if I, if he does mm-hmm. it the way I will. And I don't say I'm going to, but I, I, I'm in a position him. to do it.
0: Yeah, the, the words describe that beautifully that's worth as a slice of lamb.
2: Yeah. There you go. You're
0: not going to get it, but when you say it, he yeah. knows the word lamb.
2: But if for some yeah. reason on the recall, he does a backflip and I like it. Yeah. I am not going to ask him to recall unless I can say, Hey, I really like that. He's reinforcement. Yeah. But similarly, I never ask my dog to do anything unless I can then compel him to do it because I need him as a, as a dog who has potential to be extremely dangerous. He's a dog that has been taught to bite people mm-hmm. and, and is very good at it. He's a very social dog but it behoves me then to have the control mechanism to say like, Hey, I must make you do what I need you to do now. Mm -hmm.
0: Does that align with
2: you and and your training techniques?
0: Absolutely. And when you're doing bite work, I mean, this is the ultimate uh, example of where if uh, any flaw in the dog's ring performance, I would get him out of the ring. So finish what I'm doing, hopefully without NQing or losing lots of points. Uh If it were drastic, Like if, uh, I I can't think, uh, a dog was charging my dog or someone had gone crazy with a gun. I I would just leave. I don't care that I'm competing. We're out of there with my dog. I don't Mm -hmm. care that that NQs me straight away. So my dog comes first. But with the just breakdown in a performance that's a competition, you know, this to me is what it's all about. Mm -hmm. Um, And, no, I'll do as best I can in the ring, but then I'll take that problem out of the pattern and solve the problem. Yeah. So let's take a classic that happens early on in obedience, the drop on recall. Why? Because drop is antithetical to come. So we get this horrible thing, sit, stay, come, down, come, sit, stay, finish. You know, that, that, of course that dog's going to anticipate. Mm-hmm. Where he can anticipate the recall, he can anticipate mm-hmm. the drop. Yep. So I say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to a park and you're going to randomize The three commands. You can never say sit, come, because after you've done that 10 times, like a little dog practicing in the tennis court today, sit, stay, come, sit, stay, come. What does sit, stay mean? It means on your marks, get set. Yeah. So you're going to have dog that anticipates. Mm. Well, you can't then have it anticipate the drop because it will slow down and looks like you beat it. Mm -hmm. So I say, well, you we have to randomise those three behaviours in training, and let's throw in another one too. You know, we got sit down, come, let's put in stand, and just randomise randomize those four when he's in the park. Mm-hmm. So out of the blue, you say, rover, stand, good dog, down. Rover, sit, good dog. Rover, go play. Yep. So that's five commands we got. And periodically, rover, down. But every time you say down, it's a different training scenario. It's a Mm. real-life scenario. Now there's a kid present or other dogs. Um, or we do it in your own backyard. And so you proof down at any time. You don't proof down in a recall. It's madness. It's non-associative. So back now to, you know, say a a dog that's doing bite work, it's got to have that out. The dog obviously knows this is a game. You know, we couldn't possibly compete with it like it used to be 20, 30 years ago this wasn't a game for the dog. Mm-hmm. This was a, a barely fragilely socialized dog on the verge of biting for real, mm-hmm. you know. So this is a, a game. We've told them where to bite, how to bite, and how to let go, and how do we teach them all that? Hopefully not with a person in a full body suit mm-hmm. or with a sleeve on if it it's in. No, you did it playing tug, yeah. you know, in all sorts of situations so he knows how to take it, you know. So to take it with a full mouth, like we were doing with the little what um, one the ones had, ones the dog with the ears, the little four-month-old puppy in the bar.
2: Oh, the the cane corso,
0: the, the, the carne, yeah, carne corso, and um, teaching him, you know, how to when you bite, it's one bite, and it should be with locked your behind it, yep. your canines, mm. so you don't have to readjust. Because if you readjust, we were playing the game actually early in the afternoon. I said, you lost it. As soon yeah. as he opens his mouth, I put it. Out. But if he holds it for a while, first for two seconds or three or five with a good hold, I say you win, and he, and he wins it for a while. Mm-hmm. So any problem with the out, any problem with the out, we have got to solve this in a non-trial setting. Yeah, of course. Out of the pattern. Yeah. Um, at a different level of arousal. But then you, you raise another really important issue, which I think is to me it's one of the reasons why I'm at this conference. What do we do when the dog's Mm -hmm. non-compliant? Well, hopefully most of the time we're living with the dog. So I I do still have rules even when the dog's at uh, what I call automatic mood or DEFCON 1. These are behavior rules. If the doorbell rings, you're expected to bark but three or four times, your choice, but then you're expected to sit and, Mm -hmm. and be quiet. And so if they deviate from what is normal living, like you said, as soon as your malinois activates, well, you've lost room privilege. I would do that slightly differently because I like the dog in the family as much as possible. So I would just say, Kong, bed, thank you. And I would instructively, we used to call it an instructive reprimand. Now I just call it an instruction. So if that's wrong, what is right? Uh-huh. well we can't say to him stop looking at me or well we can actually we say look at your paws it's really interesting you know when malamas are staring at you they won't take their eyes off you know they're in what's meant to be a, a relaxed you know settle down and they're in a downstay, like a sphinx ready to go so you say look at your paws and, and you teach them that and they will do it religiously for like 10 minutes and you say chill or teach them side or what have you but I would be instructive always. When the dog's getting it wrong, the word that comes out of my mouth before any movement, my correction will always come from my mouth. It will be a word that has meaning to the dog because of prior training. Mm-hmm. Most commonly used word out of my mouth would be sit because it resolves about 90% of the times when your dog's going off track. Yep. And it hasn't got the dog back on track, but if sit means immediately – Let's think what sit means because people don't know. So like when I do little demos, I say, right, I'm a dog. I'll do anything you say. You you tell me I'll be totally obedient. They say sit. I fiddle around talking to girl dogs in the workshop. You know, I mean, real human girl dogs. And then they say, I said sit. I said, yeah, I heard you. I'm going to sit in a moment. Mm -hmm. Don't shout at me. And so, no, now redefine it. It means immediately Sit. I say, okay, sorry, my fault and my bad. Now I'll do it properly. You tell me sit, I'll be the fastest sitter on this planet. So they say, Ian, sit. And I go, boom. And then I jump up, run across the tables, and hump a guy in the workshop. <laughs> and they look at me. I said, sit. I said, yeah. And I sat. But then I, time has moved on. Life has, yeah, we've got to get on with it. That was yeah. then, this is now. So now we realize sit means immediately put your butt on the ground, keep it there till the next instruction. Then we add in and look at me. Why? Because in the real world, if you are looking at me, you're not looking at that other dog or that child or that tennis ball. And so most commonly used instruction is sit. So I use that as my emergency command, and this is why I try and teach my puppy people, or they can choose down. So and a lot of people who are going to go into any kind of competition or sports, they will prefer down because they'll be using it there. So, and that's what you practice, down anywhere. Anywhere, and, and, and we have competitions. Who can come up with the weirdest sit or down? Mm-hmm. And we had, I remember in Wisconsin, two guys, they both had Bernie's mountain dogs. And um, one of them got home from the seminar and he's chatting to his wife and he says, Oh, I'm just going to take a leak. And he says, uh, Come on, Bernie. And his wife looks at him, What's it going to take a leak? And he's calling it the dog. And so she comes around, looks up the stairs and the toilet's right at the top of the landing. There he is taking a leak and his dog's lying down behind him. And he says, Bernie, sit. And the dog sits up and his nose comes right under the stream, you know. <laughs> so what he was practicing was a back-turned sit-up from a down when I'm preoccupied, yeah, you know. And so they come back to class, the two of them. So were, oh, and the wife came and said, I, I had to meet you, Dr. Dumber. I, I, when I saw what my husband did coming back from class, I had to meet you. He is now, we're lying down. We're about to make love, and he says, Bernie, sit. (laughs) And it's like, it's everywhere now, you know, but the real good sitter. So anyway, they put Bernie on a door, and these two guys are running around the room with the dog standing on a door, and then the the owner one says, Bernie, sit. Good dog. Bernie, stand. And they do position changes while on Mm -hmm. a wobble board running around the room. You know, so – Always be instructive. Yeah. And always use your voice. And what I've learned in the last four years, see, we used to talk about an instructive reprimand. Rover sit. Sit. So, Rover sit is the request. And If you miss it, we say sit. And I used to think that raising your voice and getting a bit of tone there, you know, was essential. It's not what we've proven in the last few years in my quest for a totally stress-free, non-aversive correction or punishment because there's punishment because we define it because it works. Mm -hmm. You see, whenever we use anything we think is a punishment, aversive or not, we check it works by looking at, um, response punishment ratio. It, It has to just drop to zero. Yeah. You know, and, um, so what I learned was, so let's pick a, a situation like a, a, an emergency distance sit. And we're training it in for the first time with a dog that knows. All he knows is to sit in front of you. All right. So if we move one yard away, your response reliability will drop 10 percentage points. Two yards away, you go down another 10. You will get to a point where it drops to zero. And depending on the dog, that could be 25 yards. You know, my Malamute would go over 100 Sure, and I never want him farther away than that because he is a male Malamute who's not castrated, and he means a lot to me. One mistake, my reputation is so trashed. Yeah, yeah, and so I just say to this dog, Rover, sit. Well, does he do it? He's twenty-five yards off, and he's sniffing. Of course, he doesn't. So I keep repeating it, and I walk towards him. Rover, sit. Rover, sit. Rover, sit. So this is like frigging hell, man. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> you can't repeat the command. You're you teaching learned irrelevance. No, I'm not, because the word sit is irrelevant to him. Well, he's 25 yards away, so I can say it as many times as I like, and I've done this. Sit, 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 sit. How many times I say it? Right, now I'm going to train him that that means sit down. And it doesn't alter how long the training takes at all. Mm-hmm. You can't make something irrelevant more irrelevant, okay? So I go out to him, repeating the command, rover sit, rover sit, now, when you do this, it, it is a little spooky. The dog's like, what's he doing? You know, he used to say Rover sit and then ignore me. But now he's changed my name. I don't know what who Fido is. Well, he's Fido now. I just changed his name. Fido sit. Fido sit. Fido sit. And he starts to look at me. Fido sit. Now he slows down a bit. Now, your Malinois will run straight after me. So I'd probably do it with her tethered. Mm-hmm. Okay, because it's hard or... The other side of a fence. Then I can move back from the fence. Yep. So I can do it at distance. But a Malamie won't run towards you, you know, or a Mastiff or a Pitbull. He'll just stand there looking at you like, what the hell are you doing? And then his head will go down like, this is spooky. And Rover sit, Rover sit. Eventually the dog sits. For Zuzu, the first time we did it with her, 22 times I repeated the request to sit. And she did it. Then we say, go play. Then we do it again. And we do it again. We do it again. What do you find? As trial goes on, the number of times you say the word sit decreases until eventually it asymptotes out at one. We now have a dog that sits when we say sit, when it's at a distance, off leash and distracted. Mm -hmm. Whoa, that is a very safe dog. And I was thinking of showing the video of Zuzu, um, like how I train. Because I always walked my dogs off leash. The first obedience ring I walked into, I hadn't got a leash. They said, you need a leash. I said, oh my God, I don't have one. They were already looking at me weirdly, walking through a trial with a Malamy, you know, by my side. I didn't have a leash. Never had one growing up on the farm. Never had one with Omaha. We walked off leash by my side. Because he's made so many mistakes doing it around the living room and the garden. And if done correctly, every mistake is learning. So, no, no by my side, by my side, come on, you go over there, good dog, good dog, good dog. You know, I'm motor mouth when I'm training dogs. I'm giving them a non-stop feedback of what they're doing. They're binary, yeah, you're getting it right or getting it wrong. How well are you doing? So it's analog too, or how dangerous is non-compliance? Okay, and it's just non-stop. But if they get it wrong, it must be instructive. Mm. So, like the best advice I give to these shock people, I've done it twice before. Here is, say a word before you shock. So, watch a video yourself, then think what you're doing, the dog doing that you don't want him to do. And it could be not sitting, not looking at you when he sits, or not outing, you know, quickly enough. So let's teach him that so he understands the meaning of the word. And then, if you say out and he doesn't within half a second, because by one second you're penalized. Another second, you're super penalized. Three seconds, man, you know. And so you say, rover out, or you can use the whistle. It's up to you. If he doesn't do it, bam, in with the shock. And there, if you want to use a real high-level shock, I would, because that's a meaningful thing that's very important to you and very dangerous. What I'm tired of in dog training is people disagreeing with other people and really disagreeing with me and criticising what I've said when, in fact, I haven't even said that. they haven't even taken the bother bother to read the articles I've written or to talk to me. And my deal about shock collars is I ain't ever going to put one on a dog, me. I ain't going to put it on myself. I don't like shocks. I just don't like it. I'm not very good with buttons. My timing's off. It's not with my voice. it's, It's not for me, but I've never found it necessary. But if you find it necessary and you want to do it, here's the right way to do it. And I don't mind if that's what you do. See, I appreciate that comment right there. Yes. That's fair, what you just said. I appreciate that. Well, I would, and I will be the first to acknowledge, yeah, if Mm. you amp up the shock, it's going to hurt. Yep. The question is, did you train the dog? Mm. Because I'm getting fed up with people talking about the thing that really gets me is reactivity reactivity, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do this, and we're going to be nice to the dog, and we're going to be 100% positive and super positive, and, oh, we're going to ask for the dog to join up with us and, and be our friend and our buddy and what have you. Um, no, I'm going to stop the dog being reactive, and it's going to be stressful, but when you see me doing it, I'm praising the dog, oh, 50 times a minute. And, yeah, I know I'm reinforcing the fact he's scared too, but I'm reinforcing good behavior more, Okay. And because I'm reinforcing that he's scared or giving him the confidence, eventually he'll get the confidence, so there's no reason to bark and lunge. So now I'm only reinforcing him for not barking and lunging or for being still. And so the question is, did you solve the problem? If you haven't, if you haven't trained the dog, then shut up. Because your dog, because you won't do anything with it, lives in stress for his whole damn life, and he can't be a dog. You've taken play from that dog. He can never play again because you can't train. So if you can train, then we can have a discussion. So when I see two dogs, and let's say with reactivity, they've been trained, someone's uh, like I am, using a few treats and a lot of praise and a lot of petting and stuff, um, someone else using a shot collar, we both train the dog, so the dog now can play. Now we have the discussion. And I would say, well, you know, I think my method's more fun. Um, we've timed it, so we know which one's quickest. It may be me, it may be the shocker, we don't know yet. But once you've trained the dog, now we can have a discussion in terms of speed, effectiveness, because we're working to a criterion, so how quickly do we get there? How long do we stay at that criterion? How permanent was the learning? Like with the distant sit example I gave you, you asymptote one sit command per distant sit, but then all of a sudden out of the blue, you have to tell him three times. Mm. I don't know what was happening. He'd probably got a hair up his ass, or, or he'd seen a hair dashing across the fields. I don't yeah. know. But occasionally, you know, no dog is perfect is the thing. So once the dog is trained and then, and only then, will I bring in fun. I yeah. don't hit on a trainer because I don't say, you are irresponsible, you are inhumane. Because to have the right to do that, I have to have done what they've just done with their dog in terms of training. Can I do that a different way? Then we can have the discussion about speed, permanence, effectiveness, and fun. I say, well, which do you think best for the dog? And everyone knows. They're seeing it my way. So when I get these videos edited, it's right, I start it when I get back to San Diego. It's my new job as a video editor again. I did it once in my life and I got to learn it all again. Um, I'll present each video two ways. One will be edited and it will be highlighting every time I praise, every time I give a food treat. They're all counted. How long is the session? The clock is running the entire time. There are no cuts. If it's a cut, it's the cameraman's fault. Mm -hmm. But then I edit it down and putting up the scores of response reliability percentage, how it changes, um, how many behaviors, uh, so the response um, reward ratio, how many behaviors am I getting per food treat, you know. So that comes up, and that'll be five minutes long before I started, after, keep flashing back. But people, if they want, can click on at the end and see the uncut stuff, which, of course, will be 35, 40 minute, maybe an hour long, so that you can see, no, this was real time. We cut it down. So, I mean, if you're filming a dog sit-stay, mm how many minutes can you film it for before people get bored? Yeah. So my son came out with a great idea. What he does was he has the dog on the sit state, then he fast forward mm-hmm. and the clock goes, and you see the dog's absolutely still, but the owner sort of yeah, yeah. doing yeah, this stuff. And then boom, it catches up again. So, you know, I want to present it two ways, but it's first you train your dog before you say anything on Facebook, before you open your mouth. It, it really, that T-shirt really. Cool a story, I want to show copy. me your dog. Yeah. Show me it up.
2: Well, on that, I think – so just to clarify some of the stuff you're we talking about there, say using the e-collar for an out or whatever, one of the issues I think in the community is that there's a, a divide between people who – there's an – perceived divide between people who want to train with positive reinforcement and people who use punitive techniques. But there's this giant body of people in the middle who are using both and who are training the behaviors using positive reinforcement, but then also prepared to, if necessary, compel the dog to do the thing he's been taught to do when the circumstances dictate that he chooses not to. There's an issue with that in that you can't just go to the the, the punishment and unless there's some pressure in the learning phase. And and I hope that you would agree that if I call my dog to recall, and he knows it very well, but for some reason today, he's decided not to, the value that I potentially can provide him is less than the value that he finds in the environment. If in that moment for the first time ever, I use an e-collar on him, that e-collar doesn't have the value of, The recall—it's just going to be a a shock to his system. It's going to be
0: an unknown stimulus. Yeah, and the point is, does he know what it's for and what it means? Yeah, this is the question. That's why I say give an instruction beforehand. Well, if you gave it once, if you said come and he doesn't come, it's now a re-instruction. Then you do something. Yeah. So I personally, as I said, would never use a shock collar. I don't like the word compel. And to finish the example of the sit at a distance, the point of the example was you don't have to raise your voice mm-hmm. to end up with a dog that is absolutely running at about 97%, 98% reliable. Mm-hmm. That means 97 98% of the time, a single command, softly spoken, gets the result. Yeah. Okay? And so the way I would compel, if you like, is I wouldn't give up. I would signal to the dog in words, you must do this. And I don't care how out of control I am. I mean, I've been running after dog's hair across the field, but if I've said, Rover, sit, and that's a formal name and a formal command, I'll tell you something. Not only are they going to sit, they're going to sit twice at least because then now this exercise will not finish until it's repeated and you sit following a single command. Mm-hmm. So it goes like this. Um, and if it's my dog not sitting at a distance, I I scream when I go. If you're in a a living room, you don't. You just say, Rover, sit. Rover, sit. You walk up, Rover, sit. Then you say, thank you. And I like to say, that was pretty pathetic, wasn't it? I take two quick steps back. I say, Rover, come. Rover, sit. Good dog. There's a good boy. You got it. So if ever my dog is not compliant, in formal mode, it now has to do it twice. Okay. And it will do it twice, and I won't give up, whatever it takes. And with both Dune, Omaha, because it's so important. So Dune especially, because he's an American bulldog, so Mm -hmm. everyone thinks pit bull, off leash, children's playground. He has to be on the ball perfect. Mm -hmm. So if I say, Dune, sit, and he doesn't, I then shout, which he knows means urgency, not pain, not anger. Mm -hmm. So I run, you know, Dune, sit, sit, sit. Thank you. Good Lord. Whoa. So then I call him to come, come here. Said, "Good boy, good yeah. boy."
2: So the signal that you're giving when you said you teach that—the excited voice or the panic voice—that you uh, replicate in training or you create in training—that and you give that a super high value, so that the dog knows this is the this is the command that I really must follow. Absolutely, and he follows through with that because this and has to led to protect, the highest response. You see,
0: everyone's going to do it. Anyone who will a lot of things we've spoken about today. People say, "Oh, that's disgusting. I hate Dr. Dunbar," and, and there's a big fraction in Oz that actually ostracized me and banned me. I won't mention the name of the organization, but it's huge. And what am I saying that's not inhumane? Probably the worst thing is I sort of alluded to the fact that you aren't training dogs quickly enough, so they live being stressed out their whole lives. Yeah, They have miserable lives. But the whole thing about the tone and volume is – Everyone does it, as we know. No,
2: that's They I may agree. say
0: they don't do it with their dog, where I say, bullshit, I'd like to see you at home when the dog jumps up and knocks your wine glass out yeah, of your hand yeah. and it goes all over your new lace tablecloth you bought in Ireland, you know. Um Everyone does it. I want to protect the dog from that when you lose your temper at home, when you lose your temper with your husband. yeah, You're going to shout, and I don't want the dog freaking out. Mm. So I do, I prove every dog yeah. that volume it usually means nothing it's what happens um but if it's volume with your name in front of it it just means urgency
2: yeah and so the 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 signal of the uh the command that comes with with inflection mm-hmm. you've given that the value of uh, higher value reinforcement and so the dog knows and likes it what we do and I mean, I'm not trying to argue with you, but mm-hmm. I, I, I'm interested in the, the middle notes. ground. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in the middle ground of dog training in that, like with the e-collar, for example, it can have the value you give it. And so at a, at a level before, like, of course there's pain compliance. And, and I'm with you that most of the people who I don't want anything to do with in dog training are using the e-collar in a pain compliance fashion. Mm-hmm. And that takes no skill. And a dog w- at a high enough level will bounce around into the behavior that you eventually release the stim from. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but by giving the e-collar the value that you want it to have via positive reinforcement or via the reinforcers that you have available to the dog. It doesn't necessarily need to be an aversive stimulus, but it can be a stimulus that brings on compliance. And that's what I mean when I say to my dog, I never ask him to do anything except on competition field because – He's nude on the field, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But I never ask my dog to do anything unless I can pay him really well for doing it. But also then if he chooses not to, then use guiding pressure in that moment to say like, hey, I know you know this. I'm going to bring you into it. And then I'm still going to reinforce you when you get there. But later, that means that when I ask him, I need you to do this. And he says, for whatever reason, doesn't do it. I have a tactile command now that I can then say, hey, you know this. There was a learning phase. You know this pressure will come. And if you ignore this pressure, it will escalate, and eventually we will hit pain compliance. But before then, it's highly likely, and in my trials, the dog then goes, okay, I know how to avoid that. And escape and avoidance training certainly has such a horrible connotation because even here in the States, there's schools that teach, this is your e-collar, this is the level you use on escape, and this is the level you use on avoid. And I don't think that's necessary at all. I think that if you use any form of pressure – and uh, we would agree even just like molding via putting a puppy's butt on the floor, right? Molding pressure with your hands. He can escape that via the action that you want, but he'll avoid it because he just knows how to. It doesn't need to actually become unpleasant for the dog to then go, oh, I've learned this. I understand that this is a guiding pressure Yeah, and can me, avoid um, it by, by doing what you want. I, I
0: think we have two sets of people to talk to here. You know, people who are doing high competition work or hunters and they want to use an e-collar. Firstly, I wouldn't. Secondly, my advice to you is why don't you learn to train first? And my best example here is Martin Dealey, who sadly died um, a couple of weeks ago. And I'm the only person at this conference who saw Martin Dealey train when he lived in England. And I sat down and watched him and cried. I I did, and my producer, I had him on my TV program, and we went to watch him train to see if I thought he'd be suitable. He's in a 30-acre field. And there's an audience of about, oh, I don't know, 5,000 people milling around, drinking. It's an English thing, so everyone's pints. And then he says, uh, he's got a microphone. You know, I need two dogs uh, to demo with. And, of course, people rush towards him, you know. And he had a a four-and-a-half-month-old Springer and a six-month-old Lab that's totally over the top, out of control, batshit crazy, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting watching him, got my pint, and he proceeds using a tennis ball, a bumper, And his voice only, back then he didn't know about food treats, um, to teach both dogs to do an off-leash three-way retrieve. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, one long way out, sit the dog before he gets there, two dropped as he's running out, bring back the two close ones, then go out and get the third one. And I sat there and I thought, this is just beautiful. Mm -hmm. He is training, just like I do, using his voice Binary and analog feedback all the time, and he used the words good little dog, hey, good little dog, good lad, good little dog. And it's why I called my dog book Dr. Dunbar's Good Little Dog Book. It was named in his honor. He then, years later, so and he trained at his facility, dogs came to stay with him. The kennel was a barkless kennel. Always impresses me Mm -hmm. when you make a barkless kennel. Every shelter should be a barkless kennel, it's disgusting. Dogs are brought here, trained to bark, and then that's all they—that's thing—that's what the day is. Mm-hmm. Ridiculous! Have a barkless kennel, and he trained in a rabbit enclosure, a, a, a one-acre rabbit pen with fifty to seventy-five rabbits hopping around mm-hmm. while the dogs learn to find and retrieve a pheasant wing. So Martin Deely comes over here, and he becomes a shock collar trainer, and I'm fine with that because he knows how to train. And I'm sure he knows how to use it now. Most part, if you know how to train, you don't need it. I've I've never required it for anything that I've done in training my entire life. I've never said, I'm at a loss here. I must go to this. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because I use my voice. And both myself and Martin, we wouldn't tolerate rubbish. If you're saying fetch and the dog's hounding off over here, he would stop it with his voice. He would swear at that dog, like, and the dog stops in his tracks, and then he's, good little lad, come on, you go forget it, instantly. And these are the principles of training. Stop it. I know it's unpleasant because what the dog's doing is absolutely wrong and may be dangerous, you know. And then we stopped it. As soon as it stops, there's a good dog. What you see in homes, if people don't get that advice, is you're a bad dog. Yeah, they remain I'm not going to talk. And they put the dogs through hell mm. because they haven't trained it. So now we talk to the greater numbers, you know, the the, the people. that They're not dog trainers. They've got a dog. I would no more uh, suggest they use a shock collar than I would suggest they use a clicker. Why? They can't master a clicker because they don't have consistency and split second timing yet. You need a, a real high skill set to be able to uh, shape using a clicker. Well, if you can't master a clicker, I'm damn sure you can't master something with three buttons on it. Mm-hmm. So I, I just wouldn't enter into it. I would teach them how to use their voice and their hands to train the puppy off-leash from the outset so we see all the problems the first week. Mm-hmm. It's funny. You've got 12 puppies off-leash, and you say, right, everyone call your puppies. One person gets their puppy because they actually followed the instructions, and they've done this at home with an adult dog who came over, you know, so they could practice training their puppy to come when playing. But then two people get the puppy, then three, then five. Now it's easier as we go on. So keep so people who've got your puppies, we do the cradling exercise, handle the ears, the feet, the nose, the ghoulies, you know, hug it, look in its eyes. So they're not wasting time. They're doing the number one thing on the agenda. Eventually everyone catches their dogs. And we say, right, let them go again. And I said, well, meet the beast. That's... Was your worst nightmare but it will never happen as difficult as that again Mm
3: -hmm.
0: it's going to get easier as we do this because you live with your dogs off leash so we got to have them trained off leash and it won't be slick like this person going in the ring but it'll be reliable so i really i've always been a stickler for absolute reliability and if if you can't be consistent with the reliability then we have two different names for the dog yeah you know And that's where it's so important that you acknowledge you're inconsistent, you let your dog be inconsistent, and then you only signal when you really want it, which isn't even 1% of the day. But I must teach them what do you do when the dog gets it wrong. So as I said, misbehavior, you say a single word. So if the dog's about to lift his leg inside, outside, toilet, single word that he knows the meaning of. He's chewing your panties you know, or an objet d'art, chew toy. If he's running around like a Malinois, chew toy, bed, thank you. One single word conveys, stop what you're doing, do this instead. Yeah,
2: incompatible behavior. Good. Mm-hmm.
0: And if he's non-compliant, again, I just repeat it till you do it. If we're in formal mode, if we're not in formal mode, I change the formal mode. Mm-hmm. So if I said, Hugo, Louise, sit, Hugo, sit, immediately. If he doesn't sit there, I repeat it, repetitive reinstruction until they do, then I sarcastically say, thank you. That wasn't very good, was it? Back off, come here, rover sit. Good dog, there's a good boy, good mm. dog. And so it doesn't matter that I praised him and said thank you for a really shitty sit, That sorry, a really bad sit that took maybe 10 commands before he did it, if we praised him more. It's kind of like the dilemma we get. It's what holds us back with reactivity. People are scared of giving the dog comfort when he's obviously upset because they're afraid they're reinforcing it. Mm. The way you get around that is if I see a dog and I take a look at him, a little shepherd out here, you've probably seen him, Big Shepherd, and he's got much better yesterday and um, seeing the other dogs go by, but I can't stand seeing dogs upset. Mm -hmm. If they're reactive, when people say to me – oh, the dog's fearful, the dog's shy. I said, what are you doing about it? And they've done nothing. They've done nothing. The dog's been in shelter for a year. They've done bugger all with this dog. I said, do you know what it's like to be stressed? Think of your biggest stressor. What is it? Snakes, spiders, small spaces, being naked in public, lecturing in public. Well, imagine all of those. Every morning you have to do that. Strip down and give a lecture in a pit full of snakes and spiders <laughs> 200 feet above the ground. While you're naked. Your, yeah, your dog has to do that every day. Mm. Yeah. Because he, that, he, people are his biggest stressors and you keep exposing them to them without doing nothing. Mm. So I want to solve it really quickly. And so first I check I can touch the dog, that it's not towards humans as well. Then I'm going to have my hands on him all the time. Okay, and I'm really scratching him like this. Good boy. And by the ear, but on the chest, and then here, now the stimulus comes, and it's a setup. Here comes another dog. He goes, woo, woo, woo. And I hold on, say, it's okay. So I've got him by the collar. He can't I go. It's just another dog, you fool. It's another dog, stupid. So, yeah, I'm building his confidence, giving him reassurance, but I'm also reinforcing whatever he's doing, woo-wooing and lunging. But it's episodic. Eventually, it will stop. Yeah, all the, the the behaviors that buggers barking, they begin, they end. So when it ends, I'm saying, "It's all right, it's just another dog." Oh look, he's gone. Oh, there's a good boy, because he's gone still. Now at the same time, I want to stop reinforcing him. So classically conditioning, we only give him attention when the the, the other dog is there. When he's gone, you stop. But operant conditioning. We don't want to give him attention when he's not behaving, right? but We want to give him give attention when he's not lunging. So instead of binary feedback for both, because they're both binary, stimulus present, stimulus absent, or um, you did the behavior or you didn't, I use a tri-level thing. Okay? So if the stimulus is absent and um, you're woo-wooing, I'm going to ignore you. Stimulus present... Um, and you woo-woo, I give you low-level attention because the stimulus is present. Stimulus present and you stop reacting or you don't react, mega reward. Mm-hmm. I talk to you like, yeah, that's it. That's all we want. If you don't woo-woo, and I use the word, I tell him, I say, God, if you don't woo-woo, they'll love you. Otherwise, they'll hate you because you're a woo-wooing shepherd. And everyone hates woo-wooing shepherds. <laughs> they, they pull, they grab their children and their little bichons, but now they'll love you. You're a good, brave dog. You're a brave dog. And I keep trying to change adjectives. I say, you you are marvelous. You are brilliant. Yeah, you've got it. Well done, buddy. Well done, buddy. So now how does that compare to when he was reacting, but the stimulus is present, and I'm just gently saying, it's okay, just another dog, you see? So I can protect myself for reassuring him when the stimulus is present, classical conditioning. Um, and getting him to have the good association with the stimulus. I can protect myself from unintentionally reinforcing behavior we don't want by when he stops. We, we go crazy on the reinforcement. And and that's why I think my process is, it, it speeds it up. I'm not going to spend six months working on a dog. I'm not going to go to the house for 10 sessions in a row. No, with the last one we did, Walter, 35 minutes, we filmed it. We brought him home with us. Now you're living with five male dogs. Did that for a week? And then I didn't know. I thought he was going back to class, but I only heard last week. I said, well, how's he doing in class? He hasn't been back. And I'm like, why do you think we did this? He's in training as a service dog. That's the heartbreaking Um, moment for most anybody who's involved in training. I I left it because I could see my girlfriend's the head trainer. Mm. And the next day she said, she's all smiling. I said, what happened? said, we took Walter back to class, said, I, I handled him. He's absolutely perfect. Everyone thinks he's wonderful. They're wondering what's happened to him. Yep. Because she was scared. When she saw I absolutely like, oh, no, man. Why do you think I came to this thing and, and worked with this poor dog and stressed him for a bit so he could then come home and become a normal dog playing with our five, yep. and we could train him to make sure he pees on cue and poops on cue and settles down on cue. And then you didn't take him back to class. Yeah.
1: Stephen Lindsay (laughs)
0: mentions that in his book, Ian, where he talks about anybody who's working with
1: aggression and reactivity, they have to have a predisposition to do something about it after you're relieving the dog of feeling that way. Oh yeah. And and that's the problem for most people because they really, you know, they'll get invested at the time and then they'll let time lag and they have that lapse in between and there's a yeah. whole bunch of undoing.
0: Which yeah, absolutely right. And I'll, I'll give another lovely example for people here that, that actually facilitates every aspect of training, a pet dog, working dog, competition, whatever. Every dog needs a core social group. Mm. You see, people think, oh, no, I want my dog to be perfect all the time everywhere. Impossible. No dog is perfect all the time. Is, no human is perfect all the time. Look at us last night, acting Great. like idiots. You know? <laughs> I'm sorry, you two were acting. You know, the <laughs> of the show were very professional. No one believes yeah, that. And I was standing on one leg and dancing around. They know around. us. Yeah, they, right, us. Yeah, yeah. they know us. Um, <laughs> so a core social group. So that, because everyone, I know now, everyone with the reactivity, we want to make the dog perfect with all dogs. Impossible. Dogs like us have special friends and special enemies. So you need a core social group, and it should start in puppyhood. If you've got an adult dog, build it now. So it starts in puppyhood with, say, three dogs from your puppy class. Plus, maybe you've got a dog at home, or maybe you haven't, but your friend has a couple of adult dogs, which you've smartly brought around in that 8-12-week to vacuum, when you can't take your dog on walks yet, till we got you know good immunity. So now you bring the dog home. We just outdoor shoes remain outside. Wipe down the dog's paws because he's going to track it in. It's going to be a, you know barmytic infection. It's virus tracked usually by human feet or tires. You know, so adult dog, two adult dogs, and maybe now three puppies and puppy class. And you're meeting on a regular basis, and it's based on who are your best buddies. And their dogs, but the core social group is so powerful. Should any dog suddenly become reactive because he gets severely attacked, he needs his core social group immediately, slipping back in with his friends and buddies and bodyguards. Uh, training. You're going to produce a much better dog if you train during a play session with your core social group. So your only reward is go play or dismissed. You know, yeah, and so the core social group facilitates a lot, a lot of stuff obedience training and um dealing with the social problems with dogs, which is a real difficult one, which steals dogs' lives and ruins their owners' quality of life. Yeah, great. Life. And about to, one other thing you said, and we're probably getting very close, we're probably boring people by now, yeah. so <laughs> but the time. notion of you know teaching and compelling, I guess, I don't, aside from calmly repeating the command. and Then once it's over, thank you. Now we're going to do the whole exercise again till it's done perfectly. So if you screw up, you do it twice. At a minimum. With some dogs, I've repeated it 10 times in a row because they're still blowing me off. Eventually they do it. Your life will not continue. So that's what I do. So I, I never found the need to compel. So I guess it's how we teach. And I look on teaching as... When I had my son, um, we thought about all the things which would be a deal-breaker. You know, you're you're worried as new parents, like, what if he were deformed? See, Our son, what if he weren't very smart? Because my wife is brilliant and I'm not as smart as I used to be as a kid, but I used to be really smart. So so he can become a bricklayer. He's my son. Then we did have a deal-breaker. What if he's not funny? (laughs) <laughs> I said, deal <"Till> breaker. <laughs> you know? And then I said, and also, what if he doesn't like skiing? It wasn't important that he liked dogs, interestingly, it was skiing. So I taught skiing as a passion. I want this to become your passion so I never have to compel you to ski. And I think when we think about dog training that way, that you get a dog, and especially if you're like you, you've got a sport breed to do sport jit with it. You want it to work. And compelling won't work with any dog. We don't have a teammate who's compelled. You want them on your team because you've taught it to be their passion. They live and die for this work that we call work. It's like what I do as a vocation. It's a passion. You don't have to pay me to do this. When you said, oh, do a part, I'm th- thank goodness. Why? Because Martin died, I'm stuck here. With none to do I only agreed to do this to, to hang out with him yep I'm bored out of my skull when mm. you said come and talk about dogs in front of a microphone I thought yeah and I can say hi to all my friends in Australia anyone who's been doing my cinemas say hey hi I miss you I will come back once more you know no seminars though because we don't need it because we have this you know we're here now in the sunshine is it winter down there yeah. yeah no, it's spring. Oh, no, it's yeah, we're spring. coming out of yeah, it. Yeah. That's good. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so it be, being a passion is really important to me. And for a high-level working dog, um, like my uh, Kelly's, so Mimi is my first wife, Kelly, my second wife, both divorced now. We all get on like one happy family with Jamie as well. And Kelly and Jamie run the company. So Kelly does ring sport. When you watch her work with the dog, I just cry when I look at the dog. It's just that is the happiest dog on this planet, and he's such a crowd pleaser. You know, he's he's losing a few points at the moment because he's got one second outs. That won't happen, especially when you have loads of them. That adds up. Mm-hmm. But he's a you know one ninety solid. He always gets third place. But seeing the dog work and the crowd cheering him on, go Laz, go Laz, doing anything, not just taking down someone with a padded suit and a gun. But, you know, finding him in a blind or healing, it's just you look at him and you think, this is it. And, and, and Kelly is not a competitor. She's so nervous. Mm. She doesn't want to do it. She doesn't want to compete. She wants to have fun with her dog, but she forced herself to do this. And I, I said, you have a dog in a million there are people in the sport who would give their eye teeth for this dog because he's not only good, quick, flashy, but he's helping you through it. We don't look on it as healing. He's healing you because you walk too slow. He's going at the right speed and you're trying to keep up with him you know, because otherwise you look like Groucho Marx and it's pathetic. <laughs> but teaching training like a passion, thats that's basically, I would say, what it's about. So then the whole notion of compelling, I don't want to fall out of my best friend, you know, that I still, I shouldn't have started doing this, I still can't talk about my last dog. I wouldn't do anything, you know, to hurt her, you know. And so why do people do it? You know, they're, they're always alternatives. And so whenever you shout out of anger at the dog or your child, you think Is there a different way that we can deal with this behaviour? without shouting to my kid or my best friend, my dog. It's it's so important, and, and it can be done. But so many people get pushed into it because of the trainer. The trainer's doing this, it's on leash, so you will train your puppy on leash. Or, you know, and so, no. I think the way I've changed my career, actually today, it, I mean tomorrow, it ends. That This will probably be the last... Um, Dog professional thing I do. You come to a conference. I feel I, I've given 47 years to the various dog professions, all of them. Uh, Done a lot of stuff for pet stores, veterinarians, um, shelters, dog trainers, obviously breeders. Um, now I'm going to work with owners, and I'm going to let owners know what they should expect from a dog professional. Because here is a very unpleasant fact. If we look at all professionals, any profession, let's take a human doctor, and we rank order them, let's say, according to diagnostics. Half will fall below median. And we forget this with professionals. And the general public thinks every dog trainer's good. Every veterinarian's good. No, half are below median. Mm. Same goes for breeders. Same goes for vet stores. So how do you vet your breeder or your shelter? So you can adopt a really good dog instead of getting one that's fearful, and then you find it bites men, and then everybody. How can you buy a really good puppy? One that lives to be fifteen instead of dying at cancer at five? These are the questions you ask the breeder and the shelter. And if they won't answer them to your satisfaction, if they haven't house trained the puppy, if they haven't chew toy trained the puppy, or even taught it to come sit long roll over, or introduced it to a hundred people prior to eight weeks of age, walk away. Be discerning with your puppy buying dollar and be discerning with your donations to doggy charities. It's very sage yeah. advice. Look, uh,
2: Dr. Dunbar, thank you very much for giving up. Your time. <laughs> 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 but also, you know, uh, there's a huge contribution to the dog training world that you have given. And I am a balanced trainer. I I travel the world teaching people how to use the e-collar and you're not going to talk me out of that. I know that the way I use it is in a compassionate and I, I don't create stress in the dog. And But I also know that what you're doing works. You can demonstrate and prove it. And I think that it's excellent of you to be here at the IACP, an organization full of balance trainers. You're here walking the halls with everybody and there are the use of tools that I know that you don't necessarily support and you haven't uh, – what you said earlier, I appreciate very much saying that – that's just not how you want to do it, but you're not inclined to stop anybody else doing it, which yeah. I think is really a very important attitude for all of us to take in the industry. And I was very happy to hear as well mm-hmm. that, you know, when you saw Glenn wearing the shirt, we say, cool story, show me your dog. Mm-hmm. And I think that the benchmark for all of us, no matter what technique that we use in dog training, is that if my dog performs the behaviors and he looks good, and my mentor, Bart Bellen, would say with heart and soul, he performs the mm-hmm. he performs the behaviors with heart and soul, Dogs don't lie about that shit. So if the dog looks good, does the behaviors, we've done a great job. Doesn't lie. Give anecdotal evidence. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. it, yeah. Yep. That's it. And, yep. and I think that like all of us, everybody at this conference can agree with that. That you can exactly as you say, your behavior doesn't lie. If I tell my dog to sit mm-hmm. and his ass hits the floor and his tail's wagging and he looks at me with eyes burning like Truth is in the pudding.
0: Yeah, we've yeah. done a good job. I think another side of this is when we just talk about education, like if we tend to preach to the choir a lot. And what I find from that is the choir actually doesn't listen that accurately when yeah. they even agree with the message, so they're singing off song. Yeah. And this to me is what has caused the dramatic changes in dog training in the last 15 years, that it is <coughs> positive dog trainers, dog trainers using food who have failed, yeah. that have failed so people seek alternatives. When we talk about education, I would much rather be in the lion's den to use an expression it's a very friendly lion's den and a lot of nice lions here but no i like talking to people who have different views what mm-hmm. is the point of me Can you imagine living with my brain i have to listen to me saying the same thing over and over again to the choir No, i want to have a different challenge saying like with the lady whose seminar i want to go in now if i don't miss it Uh, It was about puppy classes and wanted me to come and us to get into a discussion on the stage about off-leash training. I I presume she teaches puppy classes on leash and she wanted to debate it. I love that. I'm ready. But I'm I'm never going to hate the person. I'm going to debate it because I have a view and I think I can do more good with my view talking to people who don't see eye to eye Mm -hmm. with what I believe in terms of dog training or for that matter, religion and politics. Yeah, I love my view, and but it is my view. It's a belief. When we now go to fact, the show me the dog. I owe it's a hundred bucks. Show me, pick a dog for me. You know, if you're now saying I can't put a dog park recall on this dog, bet me a hundred, because not only am I going to show you, I want to make money while I'm doing it. Yeah, you know. Or if you tell me your dog's reliable, I say I bet it won't sit eight times in a row each time to a single command, each time within two seconds. And so, you're, yeah, my dog will. I'm going to take another 100. No dog's ever done it, my sit test. No dog's ever passed, first time out. You can train for it and then pass, but if you don't know what's coming. So my favorite is you just turn your back on the dog, say, Rover, sit. Nearly every dog will try and come around in front, so we tie the dog so he can't, mm-hmm. won't sit. What he does is you say, Rover, sit, and he goes, he cocks his head and he sort of yeah I can't sniffing make sniffing your butt you yeah. know, I don't, know, I don't know what it speaks it says looking at your butt <laughs> yeah. but anyway no education is about talking to people that uh, have different views changing them and if you really believe in something giving everyone else the benefit of your belief but above all showing them as I say what I love about behaviour is it's observable therefore quantifiable mm-hmm. therefore doesn't lie. Yeah. yeah. But beliefs, everyone has a different belief.
2: Yeah. Ain't absolutely. that a fact?
0: Anyway, guys, I think it's thank now you. beer time somewhere in the world. <laughs> and I am so thirsty. I can't believe it. So thank you to everyone out there. Dr. Dunbar, that, is, that was a
1: fascinating discussion. I really appreciated it, and I appreciate some of your sage advice there. As you said before, we can agree on, on different methodologies, but facts are facts. Axe Facts Axe Facts Love it No worries mate All right.
2: (laughs) That's it for another episode Of the Canine Paradigm As always If you like what you hear Please like, rate, share, subscribe Do that through whatever Subscription service You download us from If you want to support the show The best way to do that Is via Patreon Three bucks a month Gets you an educational episode Ten bucks a live (laughs) Q&A with me And if you want to buy Dr Ian Dunbar (laughs) a Lamborghini You can go ahead And buy that (laughs) for him as well (laughs) (laughs) If you uh, want to get in touch with us, the best way to do that is via email. We are info at the canine Paradigm, And wait for this, Doc. is going to hit his button.